This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions and where we try to have compassionate and compelling conversations about challenging subjects. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and this week I am speaking with Bo McGuffey. Bo is the creator of Evolving Christian Faith Network. He is a fellow Substack pervert, as I like to call all of us. And we also happen to come from the same denomination, uh, the Presbyterian Church, specifically the Peace USA. Um, I'm sure we will hear more about that. Uh, he is really, really interesting. He has lots of fascinating thoughts on the future of Christianity and the ways in which Christian culture and the Christian faith has to evolve in order to uh, become more humane and more expansive and uh, match the general progressive march that we are seeing in the world. But before we get to that conversation, all of you degenerate freeloaders who have not yet subscribed to my Substack, please go to sacredtension.substack.com. There is a link in the show notes if you are listening to this on a podcast player. And just sign up for free. It literally takes two seconds. Don't even stop this recording. Don't even hit pause. Just go to the link, enter your email address, and then I will appear in your inbox like I'm Michael Myers breaking down your door multiple times a week to yell at you in your email inbox. So if you want that, then please do become a subscriber. Now, you can also become a paying subscriber and get extra content every single week, including my House of Heretics podcast with the former Salvation Army officer turned Christian heretic, Timothy McPherson, and my weekly curiosity series uh, where I consolidate, where I curate a list of the most interesting things that I found from around the internet that week. Now, if you are unable to pay the $5 a month, um, that is okay. I completely understand. The very best way to support my work is to share it with your friends. If you read something you like on the Sacred Tension blog or you hear something you like on the Sacred Tension podcast, please use the share button. Share it with all your friends. Spread the Sacred Tension mind virus. All right. Well, with all of that out of the way, Bo McGuffey, welcome. Thank you very much, for Stephen, for having me on here. And I have to say, if ever I have a podcast, I'm totally having you write my introductions for me because that's an amazing introduction. Good. I'm so, so glad. I'm so glad. Oh, I forgot. Normally, normally I threaten my listeners with what I will do if they don't becoming if they don't become a paying subscriber. So, this, I was going to say. Dear listeners, if you don't become a paying subscriber, I will be forced to go from house to house offering to scoop up cat shit in the litter boxes for pennies just to make ends meet. And so I'll be like a, a kitty litter bag lady just hauling bags of shit like I'm a bag shit, like like cat shit bag Santa Claus hauling it up and down the alleyways, just offer it, and I'll smell like cat shit permanently. I don't think you want that life for me, so please go become a paying subscriber. Okay, carry on. 
Well, I don't want that to happen to you either. So everybody out there listening, please become a paying subscriber because this is now a humanitarian effort. We, we need to help Steven avoid this this doom that he's facing. Perfect. You're getting it. This is the pitch. You're you're getting the pitch. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, all right. Well, so tell us some about who you are and what you do. Um, I am Bo McGuffey, um, and uh, I am, I, I like to think of myself as uh, more of a spiritual growth coach for progressive Christians at this point in my life with the Evolving Christian Faith Network. Now, um, the Evolving Christian Faith Network started many years ago as a simple blog, and now it's kind of evolved to the point where I feel like the technology has actually kind of caught up to that vision that I had. Had uh, for what you know can be uh, for Christianity. So, so um, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Uh, I have, as you mentioned, a uh, Substack, and that's pretty much this is the beginning of what I'm going to call uh, a launch of sorts, actually, in into the more of the public sphere. Even though I've had a blog in the past, this is more of an intentional push. I want to get my voice out there um, because I believe that uh, things do need to change, and that they actually can change. Absolutely, and you know, on, on sacred tension. I'm becoming more and more interested in multi-faith engagement, which is why I am having you on, which is why I've, I had Randall Rouser on a couple of weeks ago, the, the theologian. It's why I'm appearing on more podcasts uh, by Christians. It's why a, a few weeks ago I had a pagan on, you know, so I'm, I'm becoming more interested in these types of multi-faith conversations because there are real threats right now to democracy, to pluralism. And so in my own tiny little way, it's, I think it's necessary for me to encourage everyone of any faith or no faith to be the best version of that thing to be the best version of of whatever that thing might be. So that's part of what's motivating me to have more of these conversations. So thank you so much for joining me. Uh, And definitely thank you for having me on here, because in many respects, way back in the day when the Evolving Christian Faith Network was envisioned, this was back in 2000, and I want to say it was 2004 or so, um, I had ended up on an online community called ChristianGoth.net, and the uh, the tag line was legalism destroys and and what you saw was that it was just a it was sort of a, a community of uh, what you might call liberal Christians at the time. Today, it's more progressive Christians. It's like another language thing, mm-hmm. you know. But back then, it was liberal Christianity, you know. And um, in this particular community, there were uh, it was dominated largely. I stumbled upon it. It was dominated largely by people who were uh, gay, lesbian, transgender, who were struggling also with Christian identity at the time. And and you know, back then, it was a different game than it is today. I believe. Um, um, and so, um, as I was like uh, you know, having conversations with people in this particular community, I, I came to an understanding that this is like I was having a conversation with someone through like the messenger, you know, in a, a message forum. Oh yeah, and 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 I'm having this pastoral care conversation practically with someone online, almost real time, because it's through private messages. And the thing is, this person is in Australia. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the significance of that, in my living room, I'm having a pastoral conversation with someone halfway across the world, and I'm not paying those exorbitant long-distance fees. Yeah. Right? 
suddenly that's when I realized this is going to have to be the future. Right. And I believe that the technology has evolved now to the point where we really can start to make that kind of thing happen. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 part of the idea, though, was I thought about a message board where you had different. This is not part of the project that I'm working on now, but the mm. vision was ultimately a place online where people from a variety of different faiths could get together in their own sub communities, if you will. So you've got like, you know these Christians, these pagans, these whatever Buddhists or whatever, you know, and the idea is that they share a wider space so that they can also come together and have conversations. So in many respects, I think I'm kind of excited about being on this because you are in part continuing that project that I never was able to pull off. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, it it sounds like we have a lot of overlap in the kinds of things that we hope to accomplish. So I know that you were that you are still part of the PCUSA, Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, which is the denomination that I was born into. So I and I know that you were a pastor for some time, but I think that's mostly most of what I know. So so tell us some about your background. Tell us some about your spiritual journey. Oh wow. Okay. Um spiritual journey. Um first thing is um I didn't grow up in the church. Mm. And so it's it's kind of interesting because I ended up joining the church later. And you, you may be able to relate to this, but people that I've talked to who used to be in the church, who've left the church, uh, I talk with them and they're like, you know, Bo, um, I think one of the reasons why you can actually be a part of the church is because you didn't grow up in it. And, and, <laughs> yes. and, and when I mention that to people it's, who have grown up and left, they get that and and in ways that quite frankly i don't you know mm-hmm. but anyway i didn't grow up in the church i grew up in what i would call a culturally christian household which is my parents identified as christian but we didn't go to a church mm. um, and and what part of the was this in the in the united states uh this was in mid illinois okay um it was a rural town in mid illinois and and so um the whole area was very sort of uh, conservatively Christian, if you will, uh, as you can kind of imagine, because it's, you know, uh, a rural area. But then I went to college, and that's when I experienced information about other religions through history classes. And I discovered that, you know, um, while I considered myself uh, a Christian, um, I also considered myself a Christian with a Taoist bent because they had this understanding of the Tao, which was the Tao is a mystery. Mm. You know, the moment that you start talking about the Tao is the moment you're actually talking about something else because you can't talk about the Tao. You can't understand the Tao. The Tao is a mystery. And I always thought that that was an amazing way of conceiving of God. So I called myself a, you know, Christian with a Taoist bent. And mm. then um, after college um and i did consider myself you know spiritual but not religious is also a a slogan that i use for myself as well after college it was an interesting twist because a roommate of mine became a uh, fundamentalist um christian fundamentalist and so we had a lot of conversations and that's when i really started reading the bible and read it a lot you know and then i kind of phased into that fundamentalist phase Mm. But before we before we get to the fundamentalist phase, I want to like backtrack. So I was born into Christianity. Uh, You were not. What was it that that drew you to the Christian faith and caused your conversion? Like what what was it that appealed to you? Did you have a conversion experience? Like what happened there? That's really interesting, because one of the things is when I was really, really young, really young. We're talking probably like five-ish years old, somewhere in that range. I remember um, that I, I don't know exactly 
why, but I got in trouble for something and I was sent to my room kind of thing, you know, and, and I go to my room and I remember being quiet, you know, and wanting to play, but you gotta be quiet when you're playing because you're supposed to be, you know, not in your room to play. Right. And I remember, uh, coming across a, like a, it's like a crucifix. Okay. And I remember sort of like, it was in my toy box. And so I'm like kind of trying to play, it's a little guy on it, you know? So you kind of like, how can I, you know, but in the midst of sort of toying with this, I remember having a sense of presence that was kind of overwhelming for me a little bit. And there was a sense of, you know, who are you? And there was a sense of this was special. This thing somehow seemed special to me. And so I ended up taking it to my mom and I said, you know, um, can you put this up for me for later? And, um, and, and uh, she put it up for later. And I remember her uh bringing it back out and saying, do you want it back? I'm like, no, put it up for later. So it stayed put away for many years. And then my mom came uh, uh, when I was about 20, it was my 25th birthday, actually. I remember my mom pulling this thing out and saying, hey, I was cleaning and I found this. You told me to put it away for you. Do you want it? And so I took it. And that to me, um, that experience of sense of presence, I will say I've always had that somehow in there. Um, and it was sort of an underlying theme of things in my own spiritual life and development, if you will. Mm. And so it's identified with that, perhaps. With that with that sense of presence. Yes. And with the presence. sense of presence connected to that specific symbol as well. Yes. Okay. Symbols can be very powerful, especially, mm -hmm. you know, and, and um, now that symbol has changed its meaning a lot, you know, over the years. But, um, and a lot, it's interesting because when I talk about, you know, uh, joining the Presbyterian church, a lot of people hear that as like a conversion because I'm like, you know, I, I, I was watching TV one day and there was a sense that, you know, you know what, I really need to go to a church. And so I started checking them all out, right? What's in the area and so on and so forth. That's how I ended up with the Presbyterian Church. And people talk about that as my conversion to Christianity, which is not what I see it as all. Right. I just see that as a natural step on a path. Hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so, so we had, yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I'm just thinking back to when I was a little boy, and I would have this very real sense of presences be they like angelic or godlike or demonic or and scary you know there is the i i and i don't know if that's like a common experience for kids and my parents absolutely interpreted it as you know part of the christian worldview but i had very real experiences as a very small child of having these this like deep sense of an unseen presence. It was very intense. So I'm relating to everything that you're saying here. Okay, so so you're at college. Your roommate is getting into fundament fundamentalist Christianity, and that's kind of when your fundamentalist arc begins. Okay, actually, it's after college. Okay. I left college, um, and then that's when I sort of entered into this this sort of world. Okay. Um, now, and then, of course, um, I, I had mentioned that uh, I—okay, so I moved away from there, 
And then I moved up in, into uh, Rockford, Illinois, and that's where I ended up uh, doing more and more research and doing more and more reading of the Bible and so on and so forth. And I mean, when one is coming from a fundamentalist mindset going toward the Bible, you don't just read it. You immerse yourself in it. Yes. And and that's when I had that sense of, uh, you know, you know what? I really need to find a church. And so I ended up at a, a Presbyterian church. And lo and behold, it was not a bad place. Mm-hmm. I know, crazy, right? Because I had actually uh, envisioned churches before as being sort of these money-grubbing, power-chasing institutions, and um, and really about power and control. And I remember back when I was in college, my roommate, you know, as we we're hanging out, have, having a few beers, he says, "You know, Bo, you take the spirituality stuff really seriously. Have you ever considered the priesthood?" I'm like, "No, because that's like the antithesis of what I stand for, mm-hmm. right? You know, I'm all about spirituality, not that type of control." And so when I I discovered that the church wasn't what I thought it was, at least not in this particular case, and there is where um, I was able to uh, learn uh, new understandings of the Bible. That's where I learned about um, sort of a contemplative lifestyle. And I got into what's called a Lectio Divina small group where we learned how to uh, use the scriptures, if you will, as a springboard to opening ourselves up to divine inspiration. There is also where I encountered this thing called a critical view of the Bible. Yes. And, and, I was shocked. Okay, I it was it was it was really bad. My reaction to this was, "Oh my goodness, this is evil. This is heresy. This is I can't." Even, yes. Oh, it's so, unreal. So I remember. So so you're. I'm sure you're familiar with Bart Ehrman, who has been on the show mm-hmm. before. When I first encountered Bart Ehrman's lectures when I was in college in on YouTube on you know how Jesus became God and you know that kind of critical biblical scholarship and he is very main I mean he is very almost traditional and old fashioned in his scholarship like he is so so not radical but it is also so outside the fundamentalist worldview yes. that I could not abide it and it was terrifying it was horrifying to me oh i get that i would literally lay awake at night with sort of a rage i encountered john shelby spong um who is well he's the late uh bishop he was a a bit of a rabble rouser theologically if you will and i remember just being angry going to bed angry at these and now in retrospect it's kind of like i'm embarrassed by it but at the same time you know i accept that that's just part of where I was as a stage of development and it's a necessary part of developing as a human being and we go through these stages of faith development yes and and so um but yeah and that opened up a whole new world for me but that enabled me to step out of my silo enough that I could look back at it and say huh I, I, I yeah that's not so good anymore and and that's important being able to step out of one silo to get that critical perspective Mm. And, and and then I ended up going to seminary after that. I went from like conservative to like liberal swing very fast. Yeah, the kind of the kind of peop the kind of person that my family and the Peace USA would have been brawling with in the nineties and two thousands. Because yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I come from the conservative contingent in the Peace USA. Mm. So mm-hmm. talk some about Lectio Divina because 
this is this is actually you know I stumbled across your post on Substack about this recently where mm. you're doing a you're doing by the way shout out I don't know if this episode will be out by the time you do this session but I'm sure you'll do more of these you're you you do these these live uh, free group Lectio Divina sessions on your Substack and on Google Meet and so I'm I'm very familiar with with meditation but not necessarily Christian meditation, interestingly. Um, not necessarily Christian contemplative practice. Uh, I've read some of the mystics, but other than that, not so so my meditation practice is very based in in like Western Buddhist traditions. So tell us some about Lectio Divina. What is that? And what was it about Lectio Divina that so captivated you? Um, okay, that's okay. So when I was um, at the Presbyterian Church, I joined a small group about Lectio Divina. It was pointed, uh, I was pointed in that direction because someone thought it may be really, you know, good for me that I would really enjoy it, and I did. It was in many respects the antithesis of what I was used to doing, um, because you know the study and all this other stuff that I was engaging in. But Lectio Divina is about opening the text up, and usually it's a short text, a very short text. Um, and there are four successive readings. The first reading is really about opening yourself up and allowing yourself to be immersed in the text and to open yourself up to inspiration, if you will. And absorbing and, and all of this is happening in, in a in a meditative, contemplative kind of state, correct? Um the first three phases are like ways to step in. Okay, got pool. it. So, so you it's are. Easy. So it's like you're stepping down the steps into the into the swimming pool. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Exactly. Exactly. And so the first part is you read it, and then there's a minute of silence afterward, hmm. in which you just your see your intent, ultimately, is, through this is to pay attention to God. That's the purpose of this time. Okay, your intent is to pay attention to God. And I, I would say it's because, you know, ultimately that to which you give your ultimate attention is that to which you give your ultimate devotion. Yes. And so what this does is sort of moves you into that mindset of being able to pay attention gently. It doesn't force it. It just gently takes you there. So after the first minute of uh, opening oneself up, the second minute, or there's a second reading, and the second reading is about what word or phrase in the text speaks to you, or concept, or image, or whatever. And then you sit with that for a minute, and you ask, you know, well, why? Why, why is going on? What's going on in my life that this is so important, and what is this perhaps saying to me? And the third part is after the reading, there's a one minute of silence in which you just open your heart up to God and let it cry out to God, if you will. Whatever's in there, just let it out. And then after the fourth reading, um, you will pick, presumably before you start, a sacred word. Okay. And in the fourth reading, what you do is it's a time to let go and just rest in the arms of love. And so whenever you start to... Um, you know, when you sit in silence, one of the things you notice very quickly is at first it's like, okay, I got this. I got this. 
oh, that reminds me, I forgot to do this. <laughs> yes. And then, oh no, the laundry. I got to pay the bill. Listen, the number, this. the number of times. So I sit down for my med- my meditation in the morning, and then I'll get to the end of the twenty minutes and be like, oh, I just spent that entire time thinking about dicks. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like that was. I just completely forgot that I was meditating. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's anything and everything. But yes. the thing is, it's about noticing it because that those are scripts that are running in the background of your consciousness all day long and you start to see them and when you start to see them you remind yourself oh my intent is simply to pay attention to god all this stuff is going to be there when you're done and so you use your sacred word um oftentimes abba is a big one i personally like to use lord have mercy okay it's not a word to phrase but but i like it because for me it evokes that sense of dependence upon god mm-hmm. and also that sense of standing at the edge of an abyss and allowing yourself to fall in mm. right and to that divine abyss and so what you do is you sit and you're in part of it is on a practical level you're learning how to let go and I would say on a spiritual level, what you're trying, what you're ultimately learning to do is you'd go through a process of what's called kenosis or self-emptying so that you can allow God to work in the depths of your being and slowly and subtly transform you into that who you were truly meant to be, which is your true self, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so, and after the 20 minutes are up, when I lead it, um, I do, uh, I lead the Lord's Prayer. And then we close after that. And then I like to have some time afterward when I lead it online to have people just chat and get to know each other a little bit and kind of maybe share the experience if they want to share. If they don't want to share, that's fine. Or just kind of hang out, be a fly on the wall, listen to the conversations. It's great, you know, but but it sort of takes it from the silence to the community, if you, the individual to the community. Um, and I like that. Um, but you're right. I am planning on doing these uh, biweekly. Wait, mm. that's biweekly is every other week, right? Every other week. That's yeah. I'm going to do it every other week. Yeah. Uh, so that that is the plan. Nice, nice. And by the way, if ever you want to do some some crossover meditation on sacred tension, if maybe you would like to lead a session of uh, lectio divina, introduce my my uh, degenerate heathen audience to this really unique form of meditation. That would be awesome. Um, we can we can discuss that later if you'd be open to that. Absolutely. And I would be interested in hearing from the people out there if this is something they would want me to do. Yeah, for sure. So if you're out there and you hear this and this is something you're interested in, say something, please. Just make a comment on whatever platform you happen to be hearing this on um, and and make your voice known. Learn to use your voice. Please do. Say what you want. In the context of Lectio Divina and, I mean, in your just faith journey in general, what does the word God mean to you? Oh, that's an interesting one. Um, Okay, so a lot of times I think people think of God as um, God exists or God doesn't exist. And so you've got these variety of ways and categories of understanding God where you've got, you know, theism, atheism. And then uh, to use some category, well, theism and atheism, everybody kind of, well, theism is God is out there separate from the universe, but related to it. Kind of like the artist who paints a picture and you see the 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 soul of the artist, if you were reflected in the picture, but that's not the same as the artist. Okay. So there's a sense of relatedness. Mm. And then you've got 
um, uh, pantheism where, you know, it's like the universe is the body of God. Okay. There's that sort of one-to-one relationship kind of thing. And then you've got this thing called panentheism where it's kind of between the two, you know, it's, it says that the universe is an expression of God, but God is more than the universe. Okay. Mm. Mm-hmm. So one way to think about that would be if you want to look at um, those who are saying, uh, like Donald Hoffman out there, who is, I believe, a cognitive psychologist who uh, looks at uh, consciousness, and he believes that uh, uh, space-time is not fundamental to the universe, but rather consciousness is. It's one of the foundational structures. Kind of pan, so that, panpsychist. Very much. Yeah, it's another yeah. way to look at it. panpsychism. Okay. Yeah, um, and that's that's one possibility of looking at that. So, so um, that would be a form of panentheism. Okay, so mm-hmm. so it's it's an expression of, but not necessarily equated with. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, I want to throw all of that out the window, <laughs> and say that God is a narrative construct. Beautiful. Okay. God is the symbol of that which I perceive as being the ultimate depth and expansiveness of all that is and all that could be and all that was. Hmm. And so for me, because it is a narrative construct, one of the things I can safely say is this, I could be delusional. Um, The experience that I've talked about here, that could be just a delusion. My experience of God moving in my life, if you will, that could all be a delusion. And, you know, ultimately it's like, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's not, God doesn't exist. Oh no. Right. But for me, when I look at God as a narrative construct, what I'm really functioning, focusing on is the reality of God. So I like to say that God neither exists nor does not exist, but rather is very real to me. Yes. And it's an animating vital force in my life. Yes. So um, one way to think about this is like, okay, let's say that um, you're asleep and a, uh, no, let's, let's say that, that it's nighttime and uh, in, in your uh, neighborhood, you are concerned about there are burglars people are going to break into my house. So you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, I heard a noise. Oh no, it could be a burglar. I dial 911, right? Well, there's no burglar, but it doesn't matter because the burglar is very real to you whether or not the burglar exists. Right. Okay. It's, so it's, when a, I, it's a neural network in God. I like what, I like what Mike McArg says. God is the neural construct of the divine of the mystery it is it god is a neural network in our brain that that lights up that's interconnected it's mysterious um and it is how we interact with god and that is very real now whether that reflects an actual objective supernatural reality or if it is an adaptive thing that evolution has given us because every human being seems to be capable of it is kind of beside the point because you experience it. And to quote Dumbledore, because I'm a goddamn millennial and I always think in (laughs) Harry Potter metaphors, to quote Dumbledore at the very end of the Deathly Hallows, um, 
you know, where where Harry is having that dream in in King's Cross Station, and he's sitting next to Dumbledore, and he turns to Dumbledore and says, "Is this all happening in my head?" And Dumbledore says, "Of course, it's happening in your head, Harry. But why on earth does that mean it isn't real?" There you go. I like that. That's fantastic. Yeah, that is fantastic. Yes, yes. And and when it's real, we certainly live our lives as if, as if it all matters. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of um, the riddle of steel and Conan too. You know, the idea that, you know, steel is weak, but flesh is strong. Mm-hmm. The idea of the power of belief and the, what the, and when we believe in something, how much it affects our lives and how far we're willing to go. So, yeah, you, you know, it's been so interesting because my partner just recently converted to Judaism. I mean, he did his he did full full conversion to Judaism. And I've gone with him to some services at the local synagogue. And it's so interesting because at least in the tradition that he's in, they don't give a fuck whether you believe or not. It does not matter. And they're very kind of conservative liturgically. I mean, they do all the rituals and they have all the, they do all of the, all of the, the feast days and all of the, all of the, I don't know what the technique, feast day is Catholic, but like all of the thingamajigs, all of the big festivals and they do all of the rituals associated with the festivals. And so they're very conservative liturgically still again, wrong word, (laughs) but um, so they're very conservative liturgically but they don't give a fuck if you actually believe in God. They care whether you do it. Can do can you do Judaism? Are you doing Judaism? Not whether you believe. That that that's arbitrary almost. It's like give you can take it or leave it in terms of belief. That is not what matters. What matters is the doing. And there's there's something there as well. That's helpful for me to see because growing up in kind of in, you know, in the American South and a Protestant world, you know, the Christianity and and this is maybe where we can pivot to the reforms that that really need to take place within Christianity. Christianity, at least American Protestant Christianity, which we are both so very familiar with, or it's so bound by its emphasis on orthodoxy over orthopraxy. Because, sorry, go on, go on. I was say, and just to, to clarify, orthodoxy, you mean right belief and orthopraxy, right practice, correct? Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. You know, it, and I I think that this emphasis goes way back, you know, to like the first councils a bajillion years ago, where the emphasis on belief has been so central to, you have to confess with your lips that Christ is Lord. You have to confess that with your mouth that Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart and you shall be saved. Blah, 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 blah. And, you know, that, of course, there's lots of variation of, of that. That's less emphasized a lot in more of the high church traditions. But I, one of the things that I always felt before I left the Christian faith completely was that I can do Christianity. I just can't believe it. Mm. And I wanted a place where I could do it, but not have to believe it. I wanted a place where I could 
say the prayers, where I could do the practice, where I could feed the poor, where I could attend the services, where I could do, where I can do Christianity. But I didn't have to have the confession of faith. But I did not feel like I could find a milieu where that, where there was hospitality towards that possibility for right, me. Right, right. Yeah, that's, I, I, I agree that there is a strong sense of, of the emphasis on belief in the dominant voice of Christianity right now in America is sort of, I think, becoming its own worst enemy. I think there are a lot of people, well, there's actually a study out there I think it was 2022, and there it asked, you know, people who were leaving their congregation. Now, this didn't necessarily mean they were leaving the church; just they left their congregation. Maybe they were going somewhere else. Maybe they weren't. Who knows, right? That's not the point of the, the survey. But survey said, you know, why are you leaving? The number one reason, um, I think, it was over 50 percent of the people replied, "I just don't believe it anymore." Yes. Yeah. Same. And then, Me too. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I just can't believe that anymore. I, and then, yeah, go on, go on, go on. Yep. But the second one was interesting too, because it about 30% of the people were saying, and this could be overlapping. I don't think it was like you choose one, right? Mm -hmm. So that could be mm -hmm. all the same group, but 30% were saying they did not like the way that the church was treating LGBTQAI plus people. Yes. And that says volumes to me because. I believe that what we're going through right now is effectively a paradigm shift. And by a paradigm shift, I'm talking about culturally, if you will, there's an evolution of consciousness going on. We are becoming more and more aware, if you will. Um, and, and when I look at that response to the church, the top two reasons, what I see ultimately is a challenge to the quality of the character of the religion and the quality of the connection of the religion. In other words, the beliefs, the, the theology, the belief structure, and the way it is relating in this world. And I believe that ultimately this paradigm shift has started some time back. And now we're kind of reaching that tipping point with the younger generations. Um, and it's hard to think of myself as, you know, a Gen Xer because now I'm one of the older generations, you know, but, you know, it is what it is right now. I'm talking about your generation. And what has happened, I believe, is that the world around us has become more pluralistic. And where, whereas before, it's kind of like, you know, my grandparents were christian my parents are christian i'm a christian my children are going to be christian their children are going to be christian and it becomes just like a hand-me-down religion and you don't really have an option to choose anything else it's just what you are but now that we live in a more pluralistic society people are encountering different perspectives and now we actually have choices and now it's possible to step out of that silo and look at it critically and say wait a second is that really for me yes you know, and, and so this is part of that shift of the evolution of consciousness that's happening. And I believe that um, we need to make a paradigm shift with it, if you will, as a church. 
what so. what what would that look like? Because you and also I just want to comment on that survey that you just did that that you just talked about. The primary reason people left is because they just don't believe it anymore. The second reason is horror at the treatment of LGBTQ people. And that kind of encapsulates perfectly what I'm talking about of this emphasis of belief of orthodoxy over orthopraxy. The f- people feel like they cannot they cannot uphold the standard of orthodoxy. People feel like they can't uphold that heavy burden of right belief in creedal faith, so they just leave. And the down or and then the failure to practice orthopraxy and show genuine compassion and care to outsiders who are LGBT people. Um, that just like articulates perfectly the the tension within the church regarding orthodoxy and orthopraxy. And, you know, I wrote an article several weeks ago called I Stopped, I Left Christianity Because I Stopped Believing in It. And it is exactly what you just said. I stopped. I stopped going because I stopped believing. And I felt like I did not have, I felt like I could not find the hospitality in my immediate circles where that would be okay. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah. You know, it's interesting you mentioned, I was watch, I was on, on TikTok and I was watching someone talk about her experience and how, you know, she stopped believing. And, uh, and you know, basically she still considered herself Christian and then people just keep coming after, oh no, you know, this is terrible. How can you, you know, and all that other stuff. And, and finally she said, she just stopped identifying as Christian. It's like, you know what? I'm not a Christian anymore. And it all went away. And she's like, oh, this is great. I feel so Same. much better now. Same. Because That's... it's like I don't have to deal with all the shit. It's so much people easier. People are just throwing at you. My life as a as a minister of the Satanic Temple is so much easier than my life was as a progressive Christian. Really? Oh. <laughs> not going to lie. I mean, Satanists are fucking drama queens and have their own issues. Like, Satanists, they, they, we are all like... We all have the temperaments of fucking alley cats. So there are problems there, of course and dysfunction but just in terms of like the interpersonal conflict i feel like i have to defend myself less mm, interesting yeah um as a member of the satanic temple than i did as a progressive christian it, it because the, the the christian space that on the fringes where i was it felt like a war zone it felt like a it it felt like like a a territory dispute just constant and actually i think there is you know there's this fantastic term boundary maintenance which is uh every every group goes through boundary maintenance where it, it they have to determine what who is and who is not out and it can get very fraught and you know every group has differing ideas about about where the boundary should be well when you're right on the edge of that fucking boundary that sucks because yes 
like because you know I'm gay I'm kind of a non not kind of I am a non-theist I was very progressive Christian I was liturgically very conservative I you know so on and so forth all of that stuff and so the question so living on that boundary where all the boundary maintenance fighting is going on just absolutely fucking sucks and it got to the point where it's like okay my life is just easier without that exactly you just take the path of least resistance at some point exactly oh. it, do you yeah. at some point you just become too exhausted you were saying that christianity has to evolve in order to catch up with kind of the growing pluralism the shift in consciousness the the growing pluralism that we're seeing in society what does that look like in your mind i think it's multiple things kind of all at once um and I don't even know if I want to say catch up necessarily as much as give voice to the evolving consciousness. I operate from the posture that God is alive and well and moving in our midst at all times. Delusional though I may be, right? But that's my assumption. Mm -hmm. And so tapping into that moving spirit, that animating spirit, that life-giving creativity is, I would argue, the primary task. And so when I look at what's happening, what I see is I think there are six main traits of the, the kind of Christian future that I think we need to be pursuing. The first one is the end of Christian supremacism and that imperialism that goes with it. And I mean, when we look at, and I'm not talking about just sort of like, okay, yeah, we're not going to be, you know, doing that sort of thing. Um, that's I'm talking about a lot deeper work than that. Uh, when I look at Christian nationalism, for example, or white Christian nationalism, it's also, as it's also known and perhaps better described, I like to think of a group of people getting in a room together and saying, you know what, let's start a religious movement. And here's how we're going to do it. We're going to take all of the, 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 the sayings and the deeds of Jesus, everything he said and he did, and then we're going to create a dogma that asserts the exact opposite. <laughs> and then we're going to call it Christian because it's great marketing. Yes. You know, and that's kind of what I think about when I think of Christian nationalism. But I also know that deep down, I know that's a lie that I tell myself to make me feel good mm. about the situation. Because the truth is that, I mean, Christianity has been around for a couple thousand years. And for almost all of that time, 1700 years we'll say of that the way it has spread its influence is convert or suffer or maybe even die yes and so it's forced conversion it's about forcing christian values or their supposed christian values on a culture and maintaining control through the exercise of power and the thing is that when we look at Christian nationalism, while I like to truly think that there it's an aberration, it may actually be sort of the heir to that traditional form of Christianity that is ultimately about conquest. And it lays claim to that image of Christ as the Pantocrator, the one who rules everything. And the whole idea that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess, right? And so when we look at this, it's like, what do we do with that? 
Now, I know a lot of Christians are going to say, oh, no, 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 Christian nationalism, that's not Christian at all, has nothing to do with Jesus. And while I can understand why Christians might want to say that, I think that's a form of scapegoating. I agree. I think that ultimately that quest for power is baked into our theological DNA, and it's been there for at least 1,700 years. And we need to take a good, hard look at the theology and the heritage and everything that goes into that and start to uproot that and start to determine what about this can even truly be considered faithful. And go into our shadows, if you will, our corporate shadow, and say, where does the healing need to take place? And what has served us well? And what is not serving us anymore? And letting that kind of thing go. And so we need to move beyond that sense of Christian supremacy and imperialism. Um, another big one is the uh, we need to elevate science as a theological authority because a lot of the issues that we're dealing with among uh, uh, with within Christianity has to do with an inappropriate uh, use of the Bible. I mean, the Bible is what at least two thousand years old, depending on the text you're looking at, right? And then when you start to well, in some cases, just slightly shorter, but generally speaking, it's still a couple thousand years. Um, since then, we've developed this thing called science, and it tends to have a much better and more accurate percept perception of how people work, how um, the universe works, and so on and so forth. The universe is not 6,000 years old, okay? Um, um, there, the whole idea that um, God created Adam and Eve, so therefore there can only be two genders. That's an ancient idea, perhaps. Also, it's a poetic idea. It's not meant to be taken literally, because there is such a thing as twilight also and dusk. Yes. Um, and so, but the thing is that you're still using a 2,000-year-old document to understand the human condition when we have much better ways of understanding the human condition. Look at the idea of original sin. How many people have suffered as the result of using the concept of sin as a weapon? How many people have even died as a result of using the concept of sin as a weapon? Are there better ways to understand the human condition? Would it not be better to start looking at human beings in light of more recent science? Um, if you want to take just, you know, I mentioned the shadow earlier, rather than thinking in terms of sin, what if we were to talk about helping people instead to integrate their shadow and learn how to love themselves more and thereby learn how to love their neighbor? Would that be a better approach? Um, but that requires elevating science as a theological authority. I also think we need to focus on personal growth disciplines. And this is one of the reasons why I'm using Lectio Divina. I'm very excited that you're doing meditation uh, online too. That's, I think, a great idea because, I mean, I mentioned that, you know, religion used to be sort of a hand-me-down religion. Now that people have a choice, right, now you can choose to not be religious at all and not even worry about it. Or if you choose a religion, why? Why do you want to be of this part religion? And generally speaking, I think that people are looking for something in that. And this is where spiritual exercises come in. And this is where people have the opportunity to engage specifically so that they can grow. Now, I know that in the church, traditionally, the central focus of the church is the act of worship, getting everybody together in one place to sing hymns and to worship God. And that's still a wonderful thing. But I think now what we need to do is we need to focus more and, and make the 
spiritual growth, um, spiritual renewal and vitalization and growth be the focus through exercises instead. There's a call for justice. Number four, call for justice. Justice is what love looks like at the social level. And if you want to say that God is love, you better damn well be willing to love people, especially the people you don't like. And so that's difficult. It's very difficult. Um, It takes us into the realm of uh, the gospel is inherently political. Um, And so we need to start thinking in terms of feeding the poor, making sure everybody has access to health care, making sure that we are able to fully include those who have been marginalized, moving them to the center. And all of these kinds of things that we need to start, you know, making these types of adjustments and how we function. And that call to justice is, I think, something that's going to be absolutely vital for the future of Christianity. Um, vital for the rest of all of all of us is number five, a respect for a respect and care for creation. Um, I like to think of us all as humanity on a boat. And um, you would think theoretically that it would be in the self-interest of everybody on the boat to not drill holes in the bottom of it. <laughs> but here we have people cutting out little wooden coin size holes so that they can feel prosperous and building them up. And then you've got a group of people saying, you know, um, maybe we ought not do that. Maybe we should stop drilling holes in the body. It's filling up with water. This is not helpful. And what happens? That voice is basically dismissed in favor of accelerating the drilling so that they can be more prosperous. Yes. We need to become more responsible with the gift that we have received, if you will, that is earth. And we need to become more respectful and caring so that mother earth can truly become back into a state of being a partner with us as we all evolve together. Um, And then sixth one is the shift to online platforms. And I know that a lot of people believe that you really just can't have community online it's got to be face-to-face, and I get that, and I understand why people want to be face-to-face community, and I appreciate that. I, I like face-to-face community. Not everybody is there, though. In fact, I think a lot of people are just perfectly fine having things happen online, and they can supplement their spiritual um, sense. Uh, the, you've got spirituality, and you've got community. They've got friends and family. They can, they can, that can fill that gap for community for them, or you know, they also meet with other people in, in different places, but I think that we need to shift our focus from gathering in person to gathering online as the primary way that we meet and then supplement that with the in-person stuff. Now, if you look at those, what you've got one, two, and three, those are the harder ones. And number four, five, and six, those are a little bit easier because one, two, and three is ultimately about the quality of the character of Christianity, which is the paradigm shift. And the last three is about the quality of related, quality of connectedness. Now, a lot of times what we see is Christians, churches or whatever, want to work with the bottom three, but we're not touching the top three, right? And when you work with the bottom three, what you're doing is you're really working with renewal and revitalization. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about reformation, which is the top three. You do the top three, and then you have to do the next three to kind of fit with that. Mm. And so, so otherwise what you get is um, with you just focus on the top, the bottom three, you end up like, let's get rid of the organ and bring in a praise band. So the form changes, but the content stays the same. Yes. 
those those are those are that's the, the basic synopsis of what I think of um, when I think of thing the the main traits of uh, a future of Christianity. There is so much there to explore. Though the one that stands out to me personally right now is practice, the kind of daily spiritual practices, because that's that I think is the one that I've been exploring the most myself just in the day-to-day, kind of cultivating those quotidian spiritual exercises. And it's the one that I'm most interested in in exploring in my content, um, you know, on on Substack is how how to explore that. Because the the situation that I'm in is one where none of this stuff is ready-made, right? So, and I think that this is the crisis that a lot of... Um, "Quote unquote secular people find themselves in is the benefit. The baby in the religious bathwater is that institutionalized religions provide these structures. You know, Catholics have the Rosary, the Orthodox have the Jesus Prayer, the Jews have all of their rituals, the Buddhists have all their rituals, the the Protestants." have all their things, you know, so on and so forth. And it's really hard to kind of build spiritual practices from scratch. And most people will not have the skill or the creativity or the energy to kind of pull all those sources together to create something. And and so the end result is very often loneliness. The, the result is very often um, uh, dissatisfaction because, you know, and and that intellectual, the, the intellectual side of life is not going to cut it when we wake up in the middle of the night at 3 a.m. hating our lives and despairing and lonely and wondering what the fuck we've done with the past however many decades of our life. The the intellectual pursuits of philosophy and the and or theology and non-theism and social activism and atheism, that shit is not going to be there for you at the darkest hour. What's going to be there will be the spiritual practice that either we have cultivated or we have not. And so I really worry about kind of this, the lack of of spiritual practice. And so that's that's the of of I mean there's so much to talk about in what you've just laid out there but of the six that's the one that really stands out to me in terms of just its relevance to what I'm interested in right now. Yeah and I think that um I I, I wholeheartedly agree. Um I think that spiritual practice. So the thing is you were talking about religion, you know, religions have these these resources. And like you said, you know, getting rid of the, you know, you got to be careful because you don't want to get rid of the baby without with the bathwater. And I think that all of looking at what all of these religions might have to or not 
because no one can look at them all. But you know, looking at different religions and seeing you know what they do and what they have to offer, I think gives us a wonderful perspective. And when and, and it's interesting because they all have some sense of that spiritual discipline, you know, that sort of spiritual exercises, right? And and I think what's what the exercises do ultimately is I think they really help us go deep. And that sense of anchored and that groundedness and, and, and so on and so forth. And so, so like, for example, when you get into my fundamentalism, that I got into the Bible, I read and read and kept going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, 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 deeper. And I got really good at the Bible. But then you get to the bottom and you look up and you're like, that's what the sky looks like. Right? You're, at the, you're in a well and you look up and it's a very narrow view. I really think that absolutely spiritual exercises are absolutely vital, but I also think we need to supplement that with expanding our perspective as well. Because the deeper we get into things like spiritual exercises, I think what happens is we get invested in it mm. and it becomes a part of our identity. And then those things that aren't part of identity become other and can become very threatening to us. And the more we identify with it, the deeper we go, the harder it is to step out of that silo. And so we also need to cultivate a sense of wideness and perspective also. And so I would encourage people to uh, not just settle on an exercise, but to explore different kinds of exercises and see what works for you. And also try to learn a little bit more about yourself and say, why does this work for me? And this other thing doesn't really do it for me. What's going on there? Because ultimately I think that what the spiritual exercises are going to do, and I like to think of it in, in more traditional terms of like the true self, for example, is I ultimately think that what they do is they help us to connect with that true self, who we are truly meant to be and let that part out of us a little bit more each day. Mm, I love that. Do you have any questions for me before we wrap up? Yeah, yeah, I do actually, you know, I'm interested in, um, in, in a recent, uh, uh, Substack, you had mentioned that, you know, you were expanding your horizons yeah. And I think it's absolutely wonderful. I'd like to hear more about that, you know, a little bit about that journey, if you don't mind sharing <laughs> that, how you got kind of from to, to this point. And, and I think it helps to understand this with a little bit of the background. Do you mind sharing yes, that with me? Absolutely. So, yeah, I, so that, let's see, we are recording this on Monday, October 9th. And the article that we are referring to came out yesterday. It was one of my curiosity posts. And I just gave a bit of an announcement at the beginning of that post where I am known for being a satanic content creator. And for people new, uh, I always have to give the first few caveats. I am not that that is non-theistic Satanism. We don't believe in a literal Satan. Say it is not the biblical Satan, but the romantic Satan of the literary tradition starting in Milton. So it is symbolic and he is not the symbol of ultimate evil. So it is um, uh, and I'm a I'm a minister in the Satanic Temple. You know, for years I first joined TST, the Satanic Temple in 2017. And it was just the community, it was the religious community that I fell into. I mean, it was it was the open door that was available for me when I left Christianity. And so I went straight from Christianity to 
the Satanic Temple as my primary religious identity. And it, it had all the things that I was looking for. It had the ritual aspect. It had the symbolic aspect, social engagement, non-theism, total acceptance of LGBTQ people, just all baked in. And I was like, perfect, this is great. And, and you know, Satanism, the veneration of, of Satan as the ultimate out, outsider, the mythic Satan, and it's also important to, for me to say this isn't an anti-Christian or anti-religion thing for me. It, it, instead, it is post-Christian and pro-religious pluralism. So it isn't the sort of antagonistic Satanism that I think a lot of people picture in their mind and might have still in their psyche from Anton LaVey. This is... This is uh, an inheritor of Anton LaVey. You know, this is a descendant of Anton LaVey, but ultimately a very different creature. Um, for years, Satanism has been the primary lens through which I understood myself. You know, it was kind of this totalizing thing of that being that that religious identity and that religious practice, that religious community being all-consuming. I threw myself into it, all-consuming. It, it was, it was, every inch of me was a Satanist. And I started meditating in, you know, I've, I've been meditating. I was a yoga teacher for years, and I've been meditating for years, but I really started meditating in earnest um, daily in 2021. And especially meditation derived from Dzogchen and Advaita Vedanta in Hinduism, uh, and then Dzogchen, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. And, you know, as I kept doing that, I have found my identities getting smaller and smaller. And they aren't going they they haven't gone away. I am still all the things that I am. But there is this sense of kind of telescoping out, kind of kind of a bird's eye view, kind of lifting up and expanding the scope. And this sense of total total ease with that the the to just totally at ease with that and you know looking in meditation looking for the self discovering that the self is an illusion and that there is only this open space this open arena of consciousness and then having that the lack of the self, and by self, I mean this the the executive self, this feeling of there being a thinker, a meditator behind your eyes making decisions. That thing is an illusion, and and if you pay attention in specific ways, you can realize that it is an illusion, and then that becomes the object of your meditation. The absence of a subject focusing on an object becomes in itself the the subject of one's meditation or the object of one's meditation. And as you do that, it's like you just get very used to this sense of, of emptiness, the Buddhist concept of emptiness, and that you are empty. And that isn't a scary thing or a bad thing, but it's actually a wonderful thing. And you kind of get freedom from it. And so it, 
it isn't that these religious identities have gone away. It's just literally like their footprint is smaller. And that's that's the only way I can describe it. That's I think that's a beautiful way of describing it. I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, when you talk about, you know, that sense of getting that wider perspective. Yeah. You know, that that sense and that that sense of the uh the sense of self. Um, it's interesting because I refer to that same thing, interestingly enough, as the widening of the self. You know, that sense of identification with that wider sense. And so your identity becomes relativized, hence smaller. The big right? the but, big self. The big yeah. yes, the big self versus the the small constrained self perception. Yeah. Um the 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 little, you know, the puppets that we make that that represent what we think we are. And yeah, yeah. When I mean when you're able to relativize your perspective like that, that becomes a very powerful thing. It's deeply um, liberating. It, it is, is it is deeply liberating. It transforms how you relate to other people. It transforms how you relate to yourself. It transforms how you relate to your own suffering. You know, like, for example, so today my, you know, last night my sleep was fairly fucked. And I have the brain of, like, a Victorian housewife who sets the curtains on fire, like in Jane Eyre, who's locked in the attic. You know, that that's I had that's the brain that I have. Um, and so if I don't get enough sleep, I get all fucked up. I get depressed. I get anxious. So I, I've not been feeling great today. And because of meditation, just being able to apprehend that and be okay with it. And so that there is pain that doesn't hurt to use Robert Wright's phrase, pain that doesn't hurt. And so it it radically transforms one's relationship to pain. It can transform one's relationship to other people. I mean, it it really is to me as valuable a skill as reading. Yes, you know, absolutely. And so, you know, in that in that post, I and I I might as well say this on the podcast as well because there are people who exclusively listen to the podcast but don't read uh, the writing on sacred tension. I feel like kind of because of this, I am expanding my work beyond Satanism as well, you know? And so I'm challenging myself to expand my horizons beyond Satanism. And I, I am putting a direct moratorium. I'm, I'm putting a hard limit on content that relates specifically to the satanic temple not because i don't love the satanic temple i do but just to have harder boundaries with tst you know just to have harder harder boundaries with with that community just to spare my own sanity Uh, so that was the context just making that announcement but but the the beautiful thing about a spiritual practice is that it can make you blessedly small you know it can make your identity just wonderfully small and instead of that being a scary thing it's actually a really lovely thing so absolutely that that's that's the that's the background there that's that's absolutely wonderful i love that and 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 um it kind of reminds me i mean the effect of that 
on you and how you look at other people and how you, you know, how you hear what they're saying and everything that's wrapped around, even how do you look and hear yourself, right? Um, uh, kind of reminds me of a story that I actually cherish. I, I it, It's in Thelma Hall's Too Deep for Words about Lectio Divina. It's actually the pattern that I use for my Lectio Divina thing that I, I do on, on Sunday nights. Um, but I'm, I'm going to completely butcher this, but I'm going to try to paraphrase the story. But okay, so you've got um, a rabbi sitting with three students on a hill in a pasture. And the rabbi asks, at what point does night turn into day? And the first student, as they're standing out there and, you know, the sun is about to rise over the, the corner of the, or the edge of the, the field, he starts, the first student sees that, like, that, that light just peek up, that, you know, the actual part of the sun just peek up over the edges. Aha, I know. It's when the sun, you can see the first actual bit of the sun come up over the edge of the horizon. And the rabbi says, ah, No. And the second student's like, oh, okay. So a uh, second student looks out there and he's he sees a, a tree, a bush out there and he realizes, oh, no, no, no. Oh, he's like, okay, I know, I know, I know. It's when you, he points out there and he says, it's when you can see that the bush out there in the pasture isn't really a bush, it's a tree. And the rabbi says, ah, very good, but no. And the third one's kind of like, okay, okay, okay. This is a, this is kind of a trick thing, right? And he looks out there and he says, ah, I know what it is. It's when you look out there and you realize that the goat that's in the pasture isn't a goat. It's a dog. And the rabbi goes, aha, no. <laughs> and then they're all frustrated. And they're like, oh, tell us, you know, what, tell us, what is the answer? When is it that we can tell that night has truly turned into day? And the rabbi says, it is when you can look upon the face of any man or woman and say truly, this one is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, my sister, my brother. Because until you can do that, no matter how high that sun hangs in the sky, it is still night in your heart. And that, I think, is the transformation that those of us who are on a spiritual path ultimately seek to experience that greater sense of unity of all things and being able to truly feel at home in this world. And I like to think of what we're doing here really in the sense of sort of it's really sort of an, an interfaith dialogue right is is it's an invitation for people to do exactly that to move beyond the labels to move beyond the preconceptions to move beyond those prejudgments and instead to look upon another person as above all things a human being flesh of my flesh bone of my bone and to say, I can find myself in you. And that, I believe, is sort of the cure for the radical othering that we are seeing in this world that instead wants to tear the body of humanity apart limb from limb and use it as a scapegoat to other parts as a scapegoat to um, 
make itself feel better and not have to face who it is. Mm. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a fantastic note to end on. Bo McGuffey, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me here. It's been absolutely wonderful. And I look forward to uh, your meditation uh, online practices. Perfect. Um, And for people who want to find out more about your stuff, where can they do that? Well, my website is progressivechristianfaith.net, not .com, but .net. I'm sorry, sorry, evolvingchristianfaith.net. And that's my actual website. If you're interested in uh, keeping up with me and what I'm doing, uh, my Substack really is the best way to do that. That's evolvingchristianfaith.substack.com. and let's see. Um, I also have a book on Amazon, uh, Drinking from an Empty Glass, Living Out of a Meaningless Spirituality. It's about 10 years old now, so it might be a little out of date compared to what I'm working with at the moment. Um, but that's basically the best place to find it. It should be able to find everything at evolvingchristianfaith.net. And if you are interested out there in uh, checking out the Lectio Divina, that's going to be every other uh, Sunday for a while. And I have a limited space, so if you go to my Evolving Christian faith.net you will see on the home page there's a place you can sign but you have to rsvp in order to get in um but yeah that so i guess the answer is my website perfect well all of that will be in the show notes everyone please also subscribe to his Substack. there will be a link in the show notes as well so we can spread the love and uh so you can all be Substack perverts with us All right. Wonderful. Thank you. Ed, thank you so much for joining me. This has been great. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by Eleventy-Seven. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you listen to music. This show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons at sacredtension.substack.com. And as always, stay curious, and thanks for listening. (laughs) 